Uh, we are grateful that uh, you are here. And today we have a special treat joining us uh, at Stone Point. And it's my friend Scott Kadersha. Scott is the Director of Marriage Ministry at Watermark Community Church in Dallas. And uh, he is very influential in some of the ministries that we have here uh, meaning merge and re-engage and some of those ministries and uh, not only helping write the curriculum but also lead that in Watermark. And uh, one of the things that Watermark wants to really do is effectively reach all uh, couples in the Dallas area and help lead them to God's truth as a foundational block for marriage. And so Scott is going to just uh, walk us through a handful of things today. Uh, he is the author of a book called Ready or Not, which is going to be available after the service. Uh, if you want to grab a copy of that and you want him to sign it, I'm sure he'd love to do that. But it's a fantastic guide for marriages and particularly those that are considering marriage. Uh, among all of those gifts that he has, probably the greatest gift he has is the opportunity to tell you about his marriage to his wife, uh, Kristen, of 18 years. And today, uh, Scott's going to share a message of hope for us and encouragement, and it's a great challenge. Uh, I think you'll be blessed. So y'all please, on both campuses, give a warm Stone Point welcome to Scott Kadersha. Thank you. Good morning. Good to be here with you guys. Uh, my family was with me here at the first service, and they had to head back to Dallas. But good to be with you. Um, am I on? Yes. Okay, good. I forgot to do that the first service. So I did the first thing right. I turned my microphone on. Hopefully uh, hopefully you can hear me. So married at Kristen for 18 years. Uh, we A um, little bit of our story of how we met. So I was a, a, in Atlanta for grad school for physical therapy. As part of grad school, you go do a lot of classroom work, and then you do these two-month rotations throughout the rest of your time. And so, you know, you might be like orthopedic sports medicine, it might be working with kids or older folks or rehab, kind of anything under the sun. And, uh, and I show up for a two-month uh, rotation at this hospital in uh, Atlanta called the Shepherd Center. Now, I go and I sit down on the mat. They tell me where to go up to the second floor. I'm terrified. You know, it's like brand new. This is the place where I really wanted a job. And so I go sit down and I'm on the mat. And uh, they said, Kristen's going to be your clinical instructor. And, and in walks this woman who's about six foot tall, beautiful, just kind of, you know, drop dead gorgeous. She comes up to me, says she's going to be my instructor. And uh, I mean, I, I thank the Lord right then and there in that moment. And, uh, and it was love at first sight for one of us. <laughs> Took her a couple of years to get with the program. And uh, so we were, we, she was a brand new believer. I was about to put my faith and trust in Christ a, a couple months after that. And we became really good friends, went to church together, had a great friend group together of guys and girls that we hung out with. And then uh, eventually got her to go on a date with me somehow convinced her. We dated. It was not the best dating relationship ever. Everything I tell pre-married couples to do, we didn't do. Everything I tell them not to do, we did. And we kind of paid the price for it, just not the healthiest relationship around. We broke up. And uh, I don't know if you're, you know, we're Taylor Swift song. We are never, ever, ever. We are never, ever, ever. <laughs> getting back together. Before she sung that, that was my anthem. And I said, we're never going to date one another. I'm I just am not into her anymore. And uh, we both got really, really serious about Jesus Christ. 
I mean, we started just really plugging in a church and being involved in community, using our gifts. Our lives radically changed. And all of a sudden, she looks across the room and she sees me. And now all of a sudden, she's kind of into me. And so she asked me on a date. I said, yes, somewhat begrudgingly. It was a really nice restaurant. And so kind of went for the free meal that she said she was going to buy for me. <laughs> went on a date, radically different. Uh, we ended up getting engaged five, six months later got married the week of 9-11. So 9-11 was on a Tuesday. In 2001, we got married that Saturday. So 18 years of marriage. Right around that time was when the Lord called me into full-time ministry. I was thinking he might be calling me into ministry. We ended up running through a bunch of options. The one where we landed was for us to move to Dallas as newlyweds. Went to seminary for four years. The Scott Kedersha plan was we're going to go to seminary. I'm going to be there for four years, and then we're going to get out of Texas as quickly as possible. Okay, y'all are a bunch of weird people. We're not sticking around here. This is, you know, Dallas. Life's too short to live in Dallas. You guys know. And so ended up sticking around 17 and a half years later. We are still living here. We love living in Texas. We raised and we're making, uh, we made four young boys. And so our boys are now 15, 15, almost 13, and 11. Uh, The way I like to describe our home is that it is a loud, chaotic, stinky, obnoxious home. And then we had four kids. And so uh, so that's our family life. And uh, work at Watermark as the director of marriage ministry. Get to work with pre-married, newly married, re-engage a little bit of everything. And I just want to, I, I just want to confess from the beginning. Okay, just the just the uh, deep insecurity I have in this in this message. Okay, so I know you're in a you're in a series on strengthening your family tree, and candidly, there are times when I look at my life and my marriage and my kids. And I go, man, I'm not equipped to do anything. Okay, I shouldn't have even been allowed to have children. Okay, and then to, to make four of them, that's <laughs> reckless at times. That, you know, that we would have four kids running around and I, you know, I fall short, I'm, I get angry, I you know, can't handle my body, like eat too much, and I'm you know, frustrated at times, and I'm selfish. And I go, and I, I'm the guy leading the marriage charge at our church, and I'm here as a guest communicator about marriage. And sometimes, I, you know, there's no like, we love Jesus and we love each other. We're doing the best we can. But there are times when, when I fall short. And I, the only reason why, you know, I've got this insecurity in confessing that. The flip side is I know I'm right at home. Okay, I know everyone else in this room has the same struggles. Okay, yours might look a little bit different than mine, but we all struggle in living out what God calls us to do. And so I'm not, you know, candidly, if I could, I'd put this uh, the, the um, platform, this, the um, podium, what music stand, <laughs> I can't think of the word, word finding, so I'd put it down here and I'd talk amongst you because I am a fellow struggler in following Jesus in my marriage and in parenting. But I care deeply. I care about my marriage. I care about the way my kids are coming up and I care about what happens to you. And so I am so encouraged that you are taking time four weeks to talk about strengthening your family tree. And I know that's not just four weeks that you do that. That's something we do 52 weeks of the year. It's something we do 365 days of the year, 24 hours a day, every hour, every minute. We should be walking, working on a relationship with Christ and then strengthening our tree. 
but it helps to be reminded of truth uh, very intentionally in this series. And as I thought about strengthening the family tree, I just reminded of the, the street I live on at home. So in my neighborhood, we got three homes in front of us, two on the side, three in the back, and I'm surrounded by broken homes. I'm also surrounded by a bunch of trees as we talk about strengthening your family tree. Our home was built in 1962. Great home, awesome neighborhood, public school. We walked a half mile to get the kids to high school and uh, elementary school. Really good neighborhood, incredible neighbors. One of the things that we're known for in our neighborhood are the amazing trees we have. Okay, we live near Frisco. Frisco's the, the fastest growing city in America, six years running. And I drive up there, and I'm kind of disgusted. Everything is brand new. Everything's nice and shiny, but there's no trees because you can't force a tree to grow more quickly. But one thing in our amazing neighborhood, all these amazing trees, they're starting to come down. Whether they're diseased, we had two big storms come through Dallas in the last six months. Sometimes neighbors are having to chop down their tree because the roots are getting inside the house and messing with the foundation. And so these beautiful trees are tearing down. And I wish that was the biggest problem we face with trees in our neighborhood. The biggest problem we face with trees are the family trees that are not being strengthened, but that are coming down. All around us, trees are failing. They're coming apart. They're being torn down. They're being chopped down. Everywhere around us, the family tree is not being strengthened, but being diminished and torn down. Let me give you real briefly, not to depress you, but a little marriage and family state of the union, just so that we're speaking in reality. Okay, this year, about 50%, no, not this year, but 50% of marriages, give and take, will end in divorce at some point along the way. Okay, the numbers vary inside the church, outside the church, whatever it is, it's way too high. Okay, and what that means is that family trees are being cut down all around us. Four out of 10 weddings that will take place this year will uh, take place with someone who's bringing a child into marriage from a previous marriage or relationship. Okay, in those, the, the divorce rate for second marriages and third marriages are even higher. They're not destined to end up that way, but it becomes even more challenging with the more marriages we have and the more that we bring into marriage. Kids raised in homes with single parent families, and a lot of people will not get married, but they'll stay as single-parent family homes. Boys raised in single-parent family homes are about twice as likely to be incarcerated, put in jail, compared with boys raised in intact married homes. Poverty goes way up in single-parent family homes. Boys born into single-parent family homes are more likely to end up doing uh, all the things we don't want them to do and none of the things we want them to do. They're not destined to end up there, but that is where many broken families end up. We've got a family tree problem all around us. Pornography. So pornography is pervasive. It's around us. It's available. It's affordable. It doesn't cost anything. It's anywhere and everywhere. And we've got to stop talking about pornography as if it's a single guy issue. It's a human being issue. Men, women, old, young, uh, kids, it is tearing apart our society. Same-sex marriage, same-sex attraction, transgender, transsexual, gender identity, LGBTQ+, all over the place, the marriage and family is being redefined. Abuse. 
One out of every three or four women will be abused as a child or a young adult or an adult. Men, one out of five or six will be abused. We've got problems all around us. And so uh, badly, the world is trying to redefine marriage. And we need the church to be who the church has designed it to be. The way that God designed the church is that we would be the source of, uh, of help and comfort and encouragement and equipping. And we get the opportunity to break what the pattern of the world is doing. We've got a major family tree problem around us. And it's not just those people, it's us. It's my marriage, it's our marriages. We get the opportunity. John Piper, who's a writer and an author, great line. There never has been a generation whose general view of marriage is high enough. The chasm, and so the the split between the biblical vision of marriage and the common human view of marriage is now and always has been gargantuan. In other words, God designs us to be like this, but we live it out like this. We cheapen it. And so we have to, to be people who raise the value of marriage and live it out in the way that God designed and that we desire. And so very briefly, I'm going to go through just a, a definition of marriage to remind you of what's right and true. What does God's word say about marriage? Because we cannot take our cues on marriage from culture. We need to see it as God has written it and designed it for us to live out. And so the first place we see marriage comes very early in the Bible. We've got Genesis chapter 1, the creation account, and then we get to Genesis 2. And in this account, Genesis 2, 18 through 25, we see the man is, is with God. He's working in the garden. He's got animals around him. And so zebras and llamas and cats and everything is around him. And God says about that situation, it's not good that he's alone. He looks around and God gives him the task of naming the animals. And I can't, like, that's just such a strange thing. Like, how did he come up with the names? And I don't know how he happened, but, but he names the animals, but he's all alone. There's no suitable helper for him. And so God causes him to fall into a deep sleep. So he's asleep so deeply. Okay, wives, you think your husband sleeps deeply? This is a real deep sleep. He is so asleep that God reaches in, grabs a rib from him. Still sleeping, covers it up with flesh. He didn't even wake up. Okay, when he is so zonked out, God takes that rib and he fashions a woman out of it. Adam finally wakes up from this nap he's taking gets up, rubs his eyes, looks in front of him. And he goes, oh man, he goes, at last, there is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. And he's like, oh, she kind of looks like me. She's got, you know, we're similar size and shape and two arms and two legs. She's got some things that I don't have and I've got some things that she doesn't have. And I like what I see. Okay, there's that song, you know, at last my love has come along. That's the last time I sing, I'll promise. And so I, I don't know if that's about that account, but that's what I picture. He's like, yes, at last, there she is. God, you created someone like me and for me. And he's got this necessary companion, this suitable companion, this helper that God gives him. And he goes on to say, the man shall leave his father and mother, and he becomes united. He holds fast. He cleaves to his wife. And it says that they become one flesh with each other. They're one. It says that they're naked, without clothes. There's no shame between them. It's radically different than any other relationship where they could be completely naked. They could be fully clothed and be transparent or fully naked and just honest and open and without shame. 
And it's a really, really good thing. And there's so much we learn from this brief little passage about marriage. We learn from it that marriage always has been and always will be, regardless of what our government says. Marriage is one man and one woman. Okay, marriage is not man or woman's creation. It's not government's creation. It's created by God. And God determines the purpose of it. He determines how it's played out. Marriage is oneness. That somehow there's two human beings who come together and God sees us as two individuals, but also as one together. That we can be one physically and emotionally and relationally and financially. That everything becomes one. We merge our bank accounts together. We live together. We, we enjoy all the benefits of marriage as God has intended and designed. And as we continue to look throughout the Bible, we see in Matthew 19, we see Jesus with the disciples. The Pharisees come up to him. They're trying to question him. They've got some hard questions about divorce. What Matthew, uh, what Matthew says or what Jesus says in that passage, he goes back to Genesis 2. And he quotes the same passage I said, a man leaves his father and mother, holds fast, is united, cleaves to his wife. The two are one. He goes on to say, what God has brought together, let no man separate. And so God, you know, so Jesus adds this next dimension. He says, they're one flesh and the desire and my intent and the way that I created this thing is that it's radically different than any other relationship. It's a permanent relationship where you are intended to be together till death do us part. No other human relationship is similar to that. We see in Ephesians 5, the Apostle Paul writes this great passage, Ephesians 5, 22, 21, 22 through 33. He talks about the, the wife is to lovingly submit to her husband, and the husband is to love his wife as Christ loved the church. He's to present her unblemished and without spots to God when he is before the Lord. And so we see a little bit of the way that God has designed it, the roles in marriage. And then he gets to the end of that passage and he quotes Genesis 2 again. A man leaves his father and mother, is united to his wife. The two have become one flesh. And then he, he goes on to say, he adds something else. I love what Paul says. Uh, he says this mystery, he calls marriage a mystery. There's some things that we don't understand about it. I think one of them is sometimes it's just really, really difficult to understand one another. Okay, women, you are challenging to understand. Guys, we are probably even more challenging to understand. And so there's a little bit of a mystery. But then he says that, that in marriage, he's talking about Christ and the church. That it's not the only picture of the gospel, but it might be the most profound and clear picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That he creates this relationship that mimics God's relationship with us, this one flesh relationship lived out intended to be sacrificial and selfless. As we continue to look at God's word, we see that marriage is an opportunity to multiply and fill the earth. That's Genesis 1. We see marriage is companionship, a friendship, two friends coming together, getting to enjoy being married. Part of the reason, you know, just side note, we see so many millennials not getting married. And, and us older folks like me, we typically blame the millennials they're just a bunch of uncommitted, phone-addicted, and blah, blah, blah. And I just want to remind you of a couple of things. One, we created them and we raised them. And so the problem is not them. The problem is us and the way that we raise them. And then the second thing I would say to defend our, our poor millennials is that all they do is hear people in my stage of life, and a lot of you, they hear us talk about how difficult marriage is. And so I go, why, why would somebody sign up for something 
that sounds so miserable. And so we need to change our tune about marriage. If we are going to see young people decide to get married, we need to raise the value of marriage to the way that God designed it and intended it. So going back to my notes, so it's also a covenant relationship, different than any other relationship. Most marriages, we, or most relationships, we think of contract, that if you do something wrong, then I want out of it. A basketball player signs a big contract with the Dallas Mavs, and if they don't get what they want or they don't perform, they can end it. It's this, you know, it's, uncon- it's conditional, it's breakable. Marriages intend to be unconditional, unbreakable. It's the way that God relates to us, this unconditional, unbreakable covenant relationship. And so we put all of that together, a little definition of marriage. We believe marriage is designed by God, not by you, not by me. It's designed by God as a lifelong, till death do us part, covenantal relationship between one man and one woman. It's intended to give a picture of Christ's loving relationship with his bride, the church. That's all guided by Scripture. It's not your creation, it's not mine. It's the way that God has designed this thing. And so it's all well and good. That, that's what it's intended to be, but we so often mess it up. Again, we typically, what we want to do is we want to blame our spouse. We want to blame our kids. We want to blame money. But very clearly, I think God's word says that the reason why we fight and struggle is because of selfish desires that wage war within us. The reason why we don't live out what God intended is because we're selfish. Now, this is not the time where you turn to your spouse and you elbow them in the ribs. This is the time when you point the finger at yourself and go, the biggest problem in my marriage is not my spouse. It's not you, it's me. Okay, you may have heard, draw the circle around yourself. Work on everyone inside the circle. The marriage problem is me. Now, where I learned this most profoundly is a couple years into our marriage. So we got married in 2001. Moved here in 2002. 2004 is when the twins were born. And so any, any twin parents in the room, just curious, raise your hands high. Because like, okay, only a few of you know my pain. Okay, and so it's awesome, but also challenging at times. And so we've got these twin boys at the time in 2004. I am, uh, at the time, I'm working at Watermark for about 14 cents an hour, and I'm going to seminary full-time. I'm working part-time as a physical therapist. Kristen was the provider for the family when we had the kids. She left her job to stay home with the twins, so she's working a lot harder for no paycheck. We are stressed to the max. We've got two human beings that we're trying to figure out how to raise them, and one of them is colicky. And so I don't know if you've ever been around a colicky kid, but just imagine me screaming in your ear nonstop Without end, that's basically what it's like to be with a colicky child. And so twin sons, Drew is screaming and crying all the time. His twin brother, Duncan, we have zero recollection of Duncan. I have no idea how he survived. He, you know, he's like an afterthought, just kind of a, probably like an average baby. Drew was the exact opposite of, a, of average. He was a pain in the tail. So screaming, crying, and... Um, Right now, Drew is, Drew's 15. He is this good-looking young man with great head of hair and smart and creative, and he doesn't scream anymore. But, but Drew, as a baby, was ugly. Okay, so uh, if you can picture Gollum or Smeagol from Lord of the Rings, that's what my child looked like. 
skinny bone sticking out his ribs, one really, really long hair sticking out of the middle of his head. Okay, and just, ah, just like doing this all of the time. No way to comfort him. You'd hold him, you'd burp him, you'd feed him, you'd change him, screaming, screaming, screaming. And so you can imagine this This didn't go on for, for days. This was weeks. Okay, it felt like it was centuries, but it was probably, probably six weeks, eight weeks. I don't even know, but, but one day, we're like, Krista and I are so tired of it all that we end up fighting with each other. And so, you know, in a way, like, like the worst fight we've ever had by far, uh, it gets personal. We start, you know, yelling things at each other, and it's not just we're mad in general or mad at the air. We're mad at one another. Blame me, each other. I start using all these four-letter words that no one should ever use, and somehow I justified them because I wasn't in full-time ministry, that it was okay for me to use them then, and so not, not true. And just the worst fight we've ever had in all of marriage. And uh, I, I just remember it like so distinctly. No idea what we're fighting about, but we've got this window that goes from our family room to our kitchen. And I'm looking through this window and there's a counter there, and Drew is screaming with my wife, and I start banging my hands on the counter over and over again, just going, my life is over, my life is over, my life is over, my life is over, over and over and over, and I'm whacking my hands over and over again. I'm in there raw, they're beet red. Somehow this is supposed to make me feel better. And it wasn't like in that moment, I didn't have this light bulb moment said, well, the reason why you're fighting right now, Scott, is because selfish desires are waging war within you and you are a selfish human being. But as I look back, that's exactly what was at play. Okay, my, my poor wife was an amazing physical therapist. Now she's at home with these kids who she loves and, and her son is so miserable that she can't comfort him. And my, my poor baby, like, is miserable and can't, nothing brings, the only thing he knows to do in the world is scream. But I'm not worried about my wife. I'm not worried about my baby. I'm worried about me, that my comforts are gone, my ease is gone. Things are difficult for poor Scott. And as I look back, I realize I am a selfish human being. The reason why we fight, the reason why we quarrel is the selfishness of my wife and the selfishness of this guy. Side note, just like, how did we get out of that argument? She puts Drew down, you know, in the crib, lets him scream, and she comes running across the room, and she jumps on my back. Now, my wife's not here for you to see her, but I'm a large human being. You know, she's a little bit taller than me, but thin. I, I always like to say I probably could have played uh, college football for a really good school, except I played the trumpet and the marching band instead, so I don't know if that would have been good or not. Probably not, but I'm a big guy. And she comes and jumps on my back, and I just start laughing at her hysterically, which I never recommend, laughing at your wife in the middle of a conflict. Makes a great story now, but that's eventually how we calm down. It's just laughing at, you know, it's basically like a mosquito trying to knock over a gorilla. Okay, and so, it, you know, in that moment, as I look back, realizing selfishness is the biggest problem that we face. So I, I can give you a million tips and tricks. I can tell you to, to date your wife and to, uh, you know, pursue each other in every way, to, um, to communicate, to resolve conflict, to be intentional with your time and with your kids and with your money. There's a lot of tips and tricks I could tell you. But the one lever, if I could pull one lever, if I could tell you to do one thing, I'm going to tell you to be like Jesus Christ. 
If you want to strengthen your family tree and grow your marriage, you deal with your sin problem and you do that through the gospel of Jesus Christ. You become more like Jesus. That is how we strengthen our families. That's how we raise healthy kids. That's how we deal with the problems of our life and our marriage. And in that, I'm reminded of of what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. And so Matthew 5 through 7 is the greatest sermon ever delivered. He may have delivered another one that was better that's not recorded, but this is the the best one that we have. And, And it's just this incredibly rich three chapters of our Bible that I never want to get over or used to or think I know it all. We've got the Beatitudes. We see if, you know, we've got a light. We're the light of the world. Don't cover it up. We're to be salt. We're to be different. It talks about not being anxious about tomorrow. Today has its own issues. It tells us how to steward our money, to not put our hopes in both the world and in, in money and in God. We've got to choose one or the other. He talks about anger. He talks about the tongue. He talks about marriage. He talks about worship. And then he gets to the end of it. And he says, I'm going to give you two choices. And so all this great stuff you hear at Stone Point, what you're hearing in this message today, you've got two choices. You either choose to to take what the Lord has told us through his word, through his spirit, through his people, and you ignore it and build your house on sand. Or you choose to take the truth of God's word, you choose to take the gospel, you choose to build your life and your marriage and your family on the solid rock foundation of Jesus Christ. Two choices. This is is the story of the three little pigs. Okay, if you remember, one builds their house out of straw, one out of twigs, one out of brick. And the wolf comes and he huffs and he puffs and he blows one down, he blows another down. The third stands strong. I don't know who wrote that story. I can't remember. I don't know if they're a follower of Jesus Christ or not, but all that story is, is Matthew 7, 24 through 27. Let me read it to you. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house, who built her house on the rock. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And so the wise person takes the truth of what he or she hears and they build their life on a rock. The floods come, the trials come, the storms come, but the house stands firm because it's built on the right foundation. The other person is a fool. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them is like a foolish man or a foolish woman who built his or her house on the sand. The same trials come, the rain falls, the floods come, the winds blow and beat against that house and it falls with a great crash. And so we all have two choices with everything that we hear. We either build our life on sand or we build it on rock. The one guarantee is that the trials are going to come. Okay, they might come in uh, miscarriage and infertility and infidelity and pornography and financial troubles and the death of a parent, the death of a child. It might come in something stupid I do or something my spouse does. It might be something someone on the outside does to us. It might be something completely out of our control. Okay, the one guarantee is that the trials are going to come. And so what are we going to do when they come? The one promise about marriage in the entire Bible 
says, if you marry, you will have trouble in this life. And so we should not be surprised that challenges come. But what are we going to do? What's going to happen to our home? And I will, I will tell you that building your house on rock is much more challenging. It's more difficult. It takes more time. It's much more expensive. Okay, if I'm going to build my house on a really good foundation, I need someone to pour a really good slab. I need it to be reinforced with concrete and steel and things that my finite brain doesn't even comprehend, but I know it needs to be built on a solid foundation. That takes hard work, time, resources that none of us have. Okay, but this is a wise investment. So often we look at what the world offers and we want the easy button. Okay, it's the Staples commercial with the easy button that we want to hit. It takes less money, less time, less effort. It goes up more quickly, and it's going to crash. I guarantee it. That is the world that I live in every single day in my job. Okay, I come home most days, and I tell my wife, you are so fortunate to be married to me. <laughs> you would have no idea what the other guys I met with do in their marriage. And then I turn it around, and I go, and... And I can never, ever adequately express how grateful I am to be married to you. You're not perfect, Kristen, but man, I am so thankful that you are my wife. Because I see day after day after day people building their life on the wrong foundation. And so the, the simple thought and challenge I want to leave you with is what are you building your life and your marriage on? It takes more work, more effort, more time, more resource, resource but it is worth it. And I want you to watch this quick video to give you a reminder of what God is trying to do in and through your marriage. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Symbols, shadows, parables. Sometimes this is about that. Flowers are about love. Signatures are about promises. Fireworks are about celebrations. Poppies are about war. And marriage is about the Christian gospel. This mystery is profound says Paul, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So the wedding begins with the groom waiting at the front. He has pursued his bride and won her, and now he just has to wait. And when she eventually comes in, the whole room stands and stares at her beauty, her immaculate dress, pure and white and spotless. She gets presented to him, and they declare that they have no other partners. They hold hands. They make promises to have and to hold, for better, for worse, forsaking all others as long as we both shall live. They exchange rings, signs of the covenant promises they have just made. They sign their names and make their vows legal. Then, as the ceremony concludes, they walk back out again, united as one. Everything he has is hers, and everything she has is his. Everybody celebrates with a meal. Later, they will express their physical union and share all of their possessions. She even takes on his name. Two have become one. And all this 
is about that. Jesus has made his people ready. His death for our sins has made us beautiful, pure, white, and spotless. We are given to him and to nobody else. We make promises to each other. Never will I leave you or abandon you, says Jesus, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer. And we reply to him, I will forsake all other gods as long as we both shall live. There is an exchange of gifts. God gives us his spirit. There is a legal declaration. God says we are righteous in his sight. And we walk on, united as one. Everything he has, his love, his power, his goodness, becomes ours. And everything we have, our sin, our shame, our past, becomes his. Everybody celebrates with a meal, bread and wine. We express our physical union through baptism in water. We give him access to all our possessions. We even take on his name and his identity. We become Christians. Two have become one. This is about that. I know you guys saw that in here a couple months ago, but that video rocks me to the core every time I see it. Because marriage is a picture of the gospel. This is about that. Okay, it says, I love in that video where it says his love and power and goodness become ours and our sin and our shame and our past become his. Marriage is a picture of his love for us. Now this, this Bible, our Bibles, do not say a ton about marriage. Okay, that might be a surprise to you, but we've got Genesis 2. We've got the Song of Solomon, which is not just filled with gardening tips. Okay, that's a picture of a relationship between a man and a woman. We've got Hosea. We've got some Proverbs. He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains la- uh, favor from the, from the Lord. Not obtains labor from the Lord. Obtains favor from the Lord. And one of my favorites, it's better to live in the corner of an attic than with a cantankerous woman. And so that's in Proverbs. There's Proverbs 31. We've got uh, Matthew quoting Genesis. We've got Ephesians 5. 1 Peter 3, Colossians 3, towards the end. There's not a lot in the Bible about marriage. 1 Corinthians 13, we always quote that at our weddings about love. That passage is about the gifts. It's about, we see that in 1 Corinthians 12 and in 14. It's not about marriage. Colossians 3, where it says, put on uh, compassion and gentleness and kindness and patience. Not about marriage. Okay, this book does not say a whole lot of what it looks like to be a great husband or a great wife. The goal of this morning is not for you to have a great marriage or to have a great family. The goal is for you to become more and more and more and more and more like Jesus Christ. And while our Bible doesn't say a lot about marriage, it says everything about the character of God. It tells us what it's like to be like Jesus Christ. And so my encouragement to you is to build your home on the right foundation, to focus on the right things, focus on becoming more and more and more like Jesus Christ. And if you want to strengthen your family tree, you don't do a bunch of tips and tricks. You become like Jesus. You do what his word says. You build your home on the solid rock foundation of Jesus Christ. There are four sets of eyes who watch me every single day of my life. 
Okay, they go to public school, they watch TV, they have phones, some of them. They're learning a lot from the world about life, about money, about driving. That's what I'm going through right now with my 15-year-olds. They're learning a lot from the world, but they're going to learn more from me and my wife than anyone else on this planet. And so if I want my kids to grow up and build their life on the right foundation, if I want to strengthen our family tree, I'm not going to follow the pattern of the world. I'm going to follow God's pattern and build my life and my marriage on the solid rock foundation of Jesus Christ. If you want to strengthen your family tree, you don't do a bunch of tips and tricks. You follow Christ wholeheartedly every day of your life. And I know it's not easy. I know it's hard work. I know you sacrifice, but it's worth it. I want to follow what God says, not what the world tells me to do. And that is how you build and strengthen your family tree. So God, I thank you for this morning. Thank you for the profound truth of your word. God, help us. We need your help. Every single one of us in this room. We want to do what's easy. We want to follow the pattern of those around us. We want the easy button. But God, help us to invest where it matters. Help us to invest in what counts. Help us not to focus on being a great husband or a great wife, but help us to walk closely with you every single day of our lives. God, help us to build our life and our marriage and our families on the solid rock foundation of Jesus Christ, not on shifting sand that we know will lead to collapse. God, I pray for those in this room who are struggling. I pray that they would be willing to invite others in and confess they need help. And for those who are doing well, I pray they'd keep going. God, help us to solidify the way that we live in a way that honors you and strengthens our family tree, not for our glory, but for our good and your glory. In your name we pray, amen.